everyone and welcome back to the Black Studies Podcast. My name is Sally Osayed and I'm back with Daniel McNeil for another conversation about Black life, livingness, and culture. Thanks, Sally. Hi, everyone. Thanks for making time to check out the Black Studies Podcast. Today, we're joined by Abdul Malik Simone and Armand Towns, two incredible scholars who have done so much to transform and boost our understanding of urban life, media philosophy, and much more. Abdul Malik Simone is an urbanist with abiding commitments to Muslim working classes, abolitionist ontologies, popular economies, and ensemble work with music. For decades, he has traveled across the world, working with various municipalities, research groups, and social movements on issues of urban transformation. He is currently a senior professorial fellow at the Urban Institute at the University of Sheffield, and a visiting professor of urban studies at the African Center for Cities at the University of Cape Town. His key publications include For the City Yet to Come, Urban Change in Four African Cities, and The Surrounds, Urban Life Within and Beyond Capture. And Armand Orr Towns is an associate professor in communication and media studies at my alma mater, Carleton University. His work brings together Black studies, cultural studies, and media philosophy, and his book on Black media philosophy was published in 2022 by the University of California Press. Dr. Towns is also the co-founder and inaugural editor of the journal Communication and Race, the newest journal of the National Communication Association. I'm really excited about this conversation between two exceptional scholars. I first learned of Abdul Malik's work at a conference at the University of Chicago. I attended around 2012 that had the theme sexuality in colonial Black Atlantic cities. And I really appreciated how Abdul Malik's presentation, inspired by jazz performers such as Albert Ayla and Ornette Coleman, was radically different anything I'd ever seen before at an academic conference. Armand and I missed each other at Carleton. He arrived at the university just as I took up a new position at Queen's. So I'm really happy to have this opportunity to connect with him and learn more about his work on media philosophy. There is one caveat though, and that is as much as I'm excited about this conversation between scholars who push professional and routine discussions of media and urbanism into lively or more radical directions, I am also a little bit apprehensive about the technical and logistical challenges of hosting a conversation between Armand and Abdul Malik, particularly because Armand is in Ottawa and an Eastern time zone while Abdul Malik is 14 hours ahead in Papua and in an Eastern Indonesia time zone. But hey, 
Let's see how it goes. Good morning, Abdul Malik, and good evening, Armand. Thanks so much for making time for the conversation. So perhaps we could begin by thinking about some of the cultural products that have formed and shaped your journeys of intellectual discovery. Uh, Abdul Malik, while you were writing and thinking about your recent book, The Surrounds, Urban Life Within and Beyond Capture, who were some of the musicians and musical ensembles that granted you pleasure and helped you to think and feel more deeply about extinction and abolition in diverse urban environments? Well, I think for me, trying to think about urbanization as a particular kind of uh, atmospheric uh, condition where, of course, sort of spatial organization, economic production, accumulation, rule, governance, all, all play a part, but, but yet atmospheric in, in, in the sense that all senses are somehow engaged in terms of attempting to have an orientation about what it is possible to feel and to think and to do. I'm particularly interested in the kind of use of, of sound and of, of, of music as a way to enable a, a bodily response to those very, very conditions. And as a mode of urbanizing the body itself, uh, to enable it to shift and act and adjust in in multiple ways, uh, and to particularly identify those kinds of spaces and opportunities uh, from which one isn't necessarily assessed or judged in particular ways. And so, therefore, the the, the musics that have always, since I've been a kid, enabled me to think and and feel this question have always been, you know, some of the, the elders, you know, from from Ornette Coleman to John Coltrane to Albert Eiler, Archie Shepp, uh, the Art Ensemble of Chicago, where there was really a, a sense of an urban of an urban music, not just because the urban becomes the context in which it is produced, but an urban music in terms of enabling and deploying multiple pathways simultaneously uh, that can be applicable to the apprehension of any particular space or opportunity. Thanks so much. It really speaks to a lot of the work that we're trying to do to think about how we make modernity and coloniality audible, visible, and legible. And I'm wondering if we can place this in conversation with some of Armand's work as well, because I was struck, Armand, rereading your interview with the Canadian Journal of Communication about your comment that Black Studies isn't really about what you read, but how you read. And I was wondering if you could maybe say a little bit more about your reading and or your listening practices and how they've informed your self-fashioning as a Black Studies scholar. Yeah, sure. So I've, I've been doing a lot in my work lately, um, a lot of returning to some of the kind of earlier um, iterations of Black Studies, um, such as the Institute of the Black World in the 1960s and 1970s. And one of the things that I find when 
we start reading kind of in that late 60s moment is how well read and how critical the thought was at that time and how they could take, I think, you know, what maybe kind of considered some of the dominant Western theory and essentially flip it and turn it on its head completely, right? Um, and I think, you know, you can look at some of that early work and you can see that they essentially transformed what Marxism even was, right? To to an extent where it's like, you know, we're we're moving away from what Marxism actually is into something else. So I so I was really I've been really inspired by that as a as a form of thinking, as a form of reading. Um and going back and looking at the kind of, you know, as as a media and communication studies scholar, right? Like the quote unquote canonical theory, right, in in my field, um, is disproportionately white, right? Um, and you know, the the kind of going back and reading that canonical theory um by taking black studies as as my approach, that theory can't can't sit unchanged, right? It can't stay the same. It has to do different work. Um so I so so I'm really interested in in looking at, you know, um quote unquote canonical theory and 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 transforming it into something else. I, I guess I could give a some insight into the music, I guess. <laughs> that I, I was raised on. Um, and I guess that also really informs me, but, you know, I was, uh, a child of the eighties and my mother blasted earth, wind and fire all through the house. So that's my, that's my earliest memory and my earliest thought, um, of just growing up with, with my mom. So. Thanks so much for sharing that, Armand. Would you be open to sharing a little bit more about what those memories provoke, inspire, generate? Like, what does it mean to think through the politics and poetics of Earth, Wind and Fire? And how has your positionality or your locations informed how you remember the meaning, the possibilities that the sense of playing with time and space, imagining new forms of belonging with time, space, and each other uh, generated. Yeah, sure. Um, I I guess you know the the kind of memory I guess that I that I have really is just kind of Saturday mornings. Uh, you know, like um, me and my mom would clean the house, and she would turn on the record player. Um, and you know the the thing that I I guess I I would say that I felt was that. Um, this is a kind of collective project, right? Like, um, this is a, you know, coming up in like a a big family with, you know, brothers and sisters, but also cousins and aunties and uncles all living together. Um, you know, we, we would do things together and listen to music together and there would be dance parties and while you're cleaning and, you know, getting in trouble while you're not cleaning. And um, so, so, you know, I guess I, I really kind of associate um, a sense of home. Um, I don't, I don't know if I'm describing it exactly how it is, but, but a a feeling of home uh, of great smells and (laughs) um, yeah, peace. 
Yeah, I think, um, no, I think you explained it well. And I think it's interesting how you're talking about um, the music bringing in kind of that idea of home and home being this like ensemble of multiple people doing multiple things, but like existing together. And it relates to me. It's interesting, like how that also reflects into the urban space. And I know I've been like, you talk a lot about the ensemble and um, the kind of improvisation in the city. Do you see any links between that? And can you speak more to that a bit? No, two, I guess maybe two things. One, 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 one is some thoughts about where I am at the moment and some thoughts about the series of conversations I've had in the last couple of days with colleagues at the University of Bayer. Um, I mean, I'm, I, I'm presently in a, in a city of about a half a million people um, that is in the sort of, what can you call it, the Pacific Black world in a situation of intense military presence of a kind of coloniality to being exerted by a post-colonial power, um, a situation of really intense dispossession. Uh, and uh, everyone has to make up on a daily basis the terms of their survival, basically. And I was I was struck by the, how boring the music is. I mean, how 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 the music is the most banal kind of rendition of old top forty heartbreak songs with a kind of country western almost uh, veneer to it, and wondering why in a city which is so heterogeneous demographically. Uh, drawing on so many possible kinds of musical traditions, but in a situation of of a kind of atmosphere of of political and economic suffocation, why why everyone is enjoined in this kind of love of heartbreak song in the most banal way, and and the way in which music just doesn't. I mean, even for the even for the hip hop movement here, which has been fairly strong in 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 recent years, they're they're now they're now a lot doing heartbreak songs because you know this is what gets the count on YouTube, you know, and and the more count you get on YouTube, the more kind of money you can make from advertising, and and so in some ways. I'm struck how within a particular kind of urban situation, music can also go nowhere, seemingly. Seemingly. I'm not saying that it necessarily does, but, but seemingly. And then I contrast this to some the conversations I've had with some colleagues in Bahia over the past few days. And, and the way in which they work at a university where it's first generation students primarily from families the first of their their generation to come to university so you have this you've had within the last couple of years this substantial infusion of black students from the region of salvador into the university and what has that experience been been like and people talk about the way in which it is simultaneously a kind of 
incredible affirmation and incredible energy, a kind of real desire on the part of students to really, you know, appropriate as much of that, that opportunity as possible and, and discovering each other. Uh, but also the kinds of tensions and mistranslations and frictions uh, that are also evident on the part of Black students that come from a large urban region, which is really complicated. There are people who live by the coast, there are people who live in the hills, there are people that live in the lowlands, there are people that live in an intensely urban areas, people who live in highly extended peripheral situations. Within a region which in the sort of global Black imagination is the kind of pantheon of a kind of pantheon of Black culture replete with its musics, replete with its festivities, replete with its heritage, replete with... And all of this is important. But what is also important is an undercurrent where the kinds of... What, what, is it, what, is it, what does it take for a kind of Black urban ethos in Salvador to hold itself together as some kind of not cohesive whole, but as some kind of heterogeneous form of interlocutorship that enables people from different kinds of situations to have some sense of each other. So here there is a kind of willingness to suspend identification with particular kinds of musical traditions and really find ways in which these can be negotiated, experimented with, almost sometimes under, under the radar as a way in which very heterogeneous positionalities can, in some ways, for the moment, suspend the kinds of tradition and formats that they've historically associated with being Black and do something completely different and do something completely unexpected because it is that sort of sense of the unexpected which is somehow necessary as a way to try to create these kinds of interlinkages amongst very different kinds of positionalities in a very complicated metropolitan region. So in those sense, the specificity, particular kinds of urban figurations and conditions may generate very different kinds of dispositions in terms of sort of musical production and experience. Thanks so much, Abdu-Malik. I mean, it invites so many thoughts in terms of, I remember the famous quote that uh, country and Western singer imagines a world where there is no irony. And a jazz singer is meant to never be able to imagine a world without irony. And I'm wondering if you can speak to what is it that makes these songs of heartbreak appear banal? Is it that refusal to engage with irony? Is it a sense of an unwillingness to, as you, you articulated, address and think through and live with ambiguity and complexity? Or is there something else going on here that you're perceiving and inviting, not so much concern, but certainly uh, inviting in engagement with? Yeah, I mean, here there's, here there seems to be a kind of, it's difficult to find a space of, 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 of irony uh, amidst the, the sort of structural absurdity of the, 
of the kind of political political situation. Um, I mean, in order to in order to attempt to foreclose the intensification of sort of Papuan aspirations for for independence, the Indonesians consistently accord this kind of apparatus of so-called autonomy, where you basically pay people to govern themselves without any real space for governing themselves. You know, so it becomes a very self-reflective, reflexive process, which, you know, you go through the motions of filling the civil servants, civil service with thousands of Papuans who have nothing really to decide, but yet go through the performance of deciding. Um, and within a city where there is an, an inordinate heterogeneity of black life that comes from very different kinds of regions, but which is, which is mobilized by the state as evidence that in some ways Papua belongs to Indonesia. That is, oh, we're also a black nation because we have black people from Flores and we have black people from Ambon and Sulawesi and they're all in, they're all in Jayapur, they're all in Papua. So we are Melanesian, we are partly, we are to a large extent black. So why should Papua claim independence by virtue of their intrinsic blackness when so any kind, the kind of experimentation that takes place amongst different black populations here, which does take place, is also in some ways foreclosed and boxed in by the state's claim to, to appropriate blackness as their, part of their own legitimacy of, of, of rule. So the spaces, the spaces of irony itself are, you know, really, I mean, are in, in some ways, in some sense, sense for, 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 foreclosed. Um, but yeah, I don't, I mean, I, I can't claim to, to know all of this very well, but I think it is in some sense, you know the day-to-day -day improvisations that you, I mean, for 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 example, for example, even even the way in which the built environment is constructed, uh, it's all temporary. There's very little investment in building anything that lasts. It's all that you have the sense of of, you know, like in many other cities, particularly of the south, or the, these incremental things that you. As soon as you acquire something, you put it into, you know, enhancing the, 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 the possibilities of a longer term inhabitation. Here, everything seems provisional and temporary, as if, as if the relationship to the space is one which is people can't find their way in, even though people have been here for generations, you know. Um, and part of that is because maybe people come here to earn money and then they send money elsewhere to where they have a greater effective attachment. But the sense of the sense of 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 
of provisionality and foreclosure at the same time somehow constrains the sort of space of spaces of and also perhaps because you know in order to to make a living you you've it's it's day by day and so you have to think of a kind of new scheme or a new hustle or a new um but it just doesn't find itself manifested in in the music you know and, and i'm not quite sure why but your your point about irony i think is a is a really useful thing so interesting thank you abdu malik i mean maybe if we shift to not just think about music but also to think about what may be constituted as noise I'm wondering, and also everything that you're inviting us to think about in terms of provisionality, about willing to the willingness to intervene at particular political junctures, even if we feel we're not experts or uh, familiar strangers to appropriate Stuart Hall's term. I'm wondering, Armand, if you might speak to how your training in Black media philosophy has or has not equipped you to think with and through your experiences in Ottawa um, over the past few months. Yeah, my my training in, um, I, I guess this kind of goes back to the earlier question about um, my reading practice um, and how um, media philosophy is my training. And, you know, I'm, um, one of the things that I, I guess you find in media philosophy um, is very much inspired by the Canadian school of, of media studies, uh, figures like Marshall McLuhan and Harold Ennis um, in particular. Um, and their essential argument is that there's, that media tell us what it means to be human, essentially, right? Um, <clears throat> so um, McLuhan's kind of famous argument is that media are any extension of man. Um, and, you know, what I am doing really is showing that it's interesting that McLuhan is building this argument off of a social Darwinian, um, lineage, right? Um, particularly he's very much influenced by, um, J.C. Carruthers, who was a psychiatrist, um, who was, quite literally a, a colonizer um, in Kenya. Um, so the kind of social Darwinian lineage that McLuhan is, is building on structures media philosophy, right? Um, so my work is really saying, you know, it's interesting that, you know, this idea of man Right, that that McLuhan is is so wedded to, 
um, is really just Europe, right? It's really just Western European white people. Um, but historically, um, black people have been constantly remaking um, this concept of, of humanity, right? Um, and that is completely ignored and left out of this understanding of, of media philosophy. Um, so I'm really interested in what does a, another form of humanity look like? Um, what is the relationship between media and technology um, and those understandings of, of Black forms of humanity? Um, and those are questions that media philosophy doesn't, doesn't really care about, right? Um, so Black media philosophy um, is, about, is about that relationship. Thanks, Armand. And could you say a little bit more about how media philosophy and or your interventions through Black media philosophy has equipped you as a uh, new faculty member at Carleton and as someone bearing witness to the events around Parliament Hill? Yeah, sure. So I, I think, you know, the... Um, going back to, you know, this question of, of, of man that is assumed in media philosophy um, is really also kind of going back to, you know, Western liberal ideas of humanity, um, of freedom, um, of liberty. Um, and these questions are disproportionately concerned with um, people who have property. Right, people who have the capacity to own, um, and you know, the looking at the, the the liberal revolutions, the consistent thing was that they didn't want to give everybody um, rights. Right, they wanted rights to disproportionately be for the bourgeoisie. Right, um, so you really start to see, I think, you know, um, especially in the um, recent trucker convoy here in Ottawa, the continual expression of freedom, continual expression of, of liberty. Um, and those terms are disproportionately about the enactment of violence, right? Enactment of, of ownership. Um, and um, this is, this is the, the, the lesson that, that, that I see in the, the trucker convoy, right? Is, um, uh, a disproportionate um, reiteration of, of what freedom means. And that's really just about um, a freedom to, to purchase, right? A freedom to own, right? Um, it's a very empty freedom, right? It's a very, um, a very kind of, I don't want to say meaningless because it's had such a, such a very, um, real and, and harmful uh, material implications, right? Um, but it definitely wasn't, you know, the way that, you know, the 
um, revolutionaries in, in Haiti were talking about freedom, right? Like they, they were using the same terms and the same um, and pulling from the same, in their minds, lineage of the French Revolution. And everybody in France was like, mm, this isn't, that's not the same, right? Like, like they, they clearly thought about freedom and liberty in, in very different ways. Um, so, so I think that, you know, we, we're still wrestling with, you know, contemporary examples of, of, of freedom that are, that's, that's really not about everybody, right? It's really just about, you know, the, the freedom to make as much money as you, as you possibly can. The structuring capacities and competencies of global media as well, in terms of what is permissible or what is deemed legible to media publics so that a protest where diesel fuel is continually burnt or is not understood or framed in relation to environmental justice or in relation to climate crisis. And I'm thinking about maybe we can invite some reflection about necessary complexity by opening up space for reflection about the intersections of our work. Um, so maybe one option could be, uh, I'm wondering if Abdul Malik, you could say a little bit more about how your work on urbanization thinks with and through the structuring capacities and competencies of global media. And Armand, if you could uh, flip that and think about how your work on media philosophy is also in conversation with urbanization uh, and questions around environmental justice. Yeah, so I'll, I'll take a, a shot at answering this. Um, one of the things that I think maybe connects to um, questions of, of, of urbanism in media philosophy is um, there's been a long question and, and connection made between media philosophy scholars and time and space. So, you know, one of the uh, big influences on me, um, Harold Ennis, um, argues that there, you know, he was arguing this in the mid 20th century, um, but media have particular biases toward time and space, was his essential argument. Temporal media are designed to last um, forever, right? And they're designed to last throughout time. Um, some of his biggest examples of that um, were um, pyramids, right? They are media that are designed to stand uh, forever. Um, whereas space bias media were designed to traverse vast distances. Um, so paper was a space bias medium. Um, and his argument was that the increase, the, um, the more space bias media you had, the more imperialism you had, um, because with um, media designed to traverse vast distances, you could disperse different types of laws, different types of codes and rules that people were supposed to follow. So I think, you know, you can look at, um, you know, and to be fair, my, my expertise isn't in urbanism, um, but I think, you know, looking at um, 
the kind of layout of um, various different cities, I think you can see, uh, especially today in an in increasingly um, globalized um, society, you can see the interconnection between that spatial bias um, and the city, right? And the global, right? The the continual need to um, connect um, beyond just your kind of um, localized city um, to cities throughout the world, right? Um, my my landlord works in Los Angeles regularly, right? Like, and, you know, everything, especially now that we have, you know, uh, these in- increasingly, you know, uh, pandemic related technologies, right? Like we can jump onto a Zoom and, and talk to people across the world, right? Um, so I think, you know, you can see definite connections between um, media philosophy and and questions of space and globalization. Um, and, you know, I think that's that's definitely something that I've always always been interested in. Yeah, in in a not in a not dissimilar way. I mean, I, I remember the the old days of of living in Khartoum and Abidjan and Douala. You know, before there were cell phones, really, and before there was social media. And if you had to do something, and you inevitably had to do something, you were required to get yourself into like a a bus or a taxi and literally go to where you needed to, to, to do something. And, and in the process of doing so, you were always interrupted. It was not a kind of seamless, not a seamless passing. You had to cross thresholds and, and there were multiple thresholds and you couldn't assume always that you knew how to cross those thresholds. You had to do it because you had to get something done. Uh, but navigation always entailed having to acquire particular kinds of tactics of navigation, of seeing things that you didn't anticipate, dealing with contingencies that you really you had to deal with at, at, at that at that moment. And it was labor intensive, you know. You you know you had to work hard for small tasks um but there was a kind of there was a kind of sensibility acquired in this kind of process being interrupted uh that meant in some ways that you always had to refigure yourself you could not really always assume all the time uh who you were necessarily um as you had to be adapt to these interruptions these these crossing the thresholds and there's some there's something about that in terms of sort of urban urban inhabitation uh and urban urban knowledge which is not necessarily lost but in some ways attenuated in the kind of proliferation of various media now where you know, you no longer have to undertake these kinds of missions in order to get things done. You you just use WhatsApp, you use SMS, you uh, and it's 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 readily available. 
pretty much affordable to anyone who needs to use it. I mean, even if you have to go to a, a, a stall that, you know, sells cheap MSS me message credits, you know, um, this is this is what takes place. And in some ways, this kind of mediation somehow also permits exposure, a volume of exposure that wasn't there before. So it's not necessarily that, that the, the amount of information one has about the context in which you operate is any less. In fact, it's oftentimes of, of greater volume. But there is this sort of assumption that you don't have all these different thresholds to cross, that somehow there's a kind of seamless navigation of everything that you need to do in order to buttress your the 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 day-to-day -day necessities of your of your ur urban urban survival and i think that that kind of assumption of seamlessness in some ways parallels a kind of white hallucination in some ways you know the white sensibility was always that this coherent self could move anywhere intact you know and not be shaken or disrupted by whatever it needed to do in order to navigate the conditions in which it faced but at the same time there are political advantages as well you know i mean it's difficult to i Having having lived in Khartoum during the 1980s, it's difficult to imagine the kind of political mobilization that one has witnessed in the last two years without certain kinds of social medias, without WhatsApp, without the ability of this kind of uh, network of communication that can bring together and coordinate different actors in different parts of the city from different walks of life very very quickly um so yeah i mean in 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 some ways there is there are different or urban orientations that are have been affected through the particular deployment of media possibilities of of intermediation uh but what has in some ways been attenuated to a certain extent is the sense of a capacity to to navigate oftentimes difficult thresholds which enables people to have the conceit that they can deal with a lot of things beyond their purview but oftentimes they're stuck in place you know they, they there is a kind of intensified niche orientation and even segregation within urban spaces that somehow come the inability to know what to do with those things on multiple thresholds. I love this way of thinking through labor as it pertains to the work that one does to enter into public spheres to create and to sustain uh, these spaces where we can have these conversations that allow us to imagine new ways of being, uh, new forms of relationship with time, space, and each other. But I guess the thing that I come back to is that when we were preparing this conversation and we thought about how there were different types of music that may have inspired our intellectual journey, we also talked about cultural products that helped us to think through and think with certain historical, political, artistic, Shifts. And the one that 
Armand, you selected was the printing press. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about why you selected this and how you see it informing or how you see us forgetting it in these contemporary moments and digital worlds. I think that for me, um, well, to be fair, I, I don't write about the printing press. Um, but I've read quite a bit about it, especially early in my my academic career. And I know it um, may seem like a, a weird cultural artifact to, to bring up, but um, I guess when I first started reading about the, the, the printing press, it was the first time that I read about a media technology that changed the way that I thought about media um, in general. Um, so largely because the Gutenberg printing press in particular um, really changed the way that the West imagined itself. Um, so you'd see, for example, with the kind of rise of the Gutenberg printing press, um, you would see the rise of literacy rates. Um, you would see the, the rise of interpretations um, of the Bible which would lead to increasingly secularized positions for Western Europeans. Um, and all of this is to say that the, the medium of Gutenberg's printing press um, was having an impact beyond the content that it was publishing, right? Um, so I'm not talking about like um, what is published or the representation um, but the impact of the physical introduction of the medium itself. Um, so the, the printing press would become um, a medium that would be viewed as representative of Western European technological development, right? Um, while also um, changing the way that Europeans imagine themselves. Um, so, I, so I really started to think um, to myself, what's the relationship between European imaginations of technological development um, and their also their their um, imaginations around the same time of superiority, um, particularly of racial superiority? Um, you know, I'm always kind of drawn back to um, Walter Rodney's um, "How Europe Underdeveloped." Um, Africa. Um, and he constantly kind of gives us a, a really nuanced reading of this word development, right? Um, and, you know, you can't separate the word technology from that understanding of development. Um, so um, I also then, you know, also like, I guess a kind of related question becomes what other media, right, beyond um, their content, beyond their representations, have also changed the way that people imagine themselves. Um, and most important for me, what is the relationship between these different changes in how one imagines themselves and Black liberation, right? And um, Black understandings and Black forms of humanity. Um, so I guess that's, that's the, that's, that was my thinking for picking the, the printing press. Um, I could have picked other things, but, you know, thinking about something that I read about early um, and that inspired um, the way that I thought 
um, that's that's why I selected the printing press. Thank you, Armand. I love that. I really found it interesting the question you posed of what other mediums not in their content within their construction themselves perpetuate ideas of whiteness, because I can immediately connect that with physical space in the construction of buildings. The decision of what materials are used, where buildings are located, every aspect of the physical construction of buildings and urban space in general is, is charged with political, social, and racial implications. Even the fact that here in the West, everything that's constructed on stolen indigenous land relinquishes any sense of neutrality because all of these spaces are based on the white imagination. Abdullah, can you maybe expand on that connection a little bit more and give us some insight on how urbanization may play out differently in cities outside of the Western sphere? Yeah, I mean, just to just to turn to music for, for a moment, um, if you if you listen to McCoy Tyner with the with the quartets of the of the sixties and his experiments with what he you know called the dominant seventh chord that sort of constantly moved around or suspended like modular blocks using the right hand to develop a range of different fast paced melodies so this the synchronization of the left hand harmonies and the right hand melodies was the means to kind of release attention of moving in different directions at the same time. And it's this sense of moving in directions at different directions at the same time, which I think is in some ways a kind of continuous problematic about black urban inhabitation that tries to mediate between what could be called an exclusionary inclusion and an inclusionary exclusion. I mean, on the, on, on the one hand, an urban politics has to, in some ways, demand to be recognized and enfolded within the predominant normative terms of recognition. Uh, you have to have the means and the resources to be able to materially make it within an urban, urban space. To do that, you need a kind of politics that that translates that need into the sort of norm normative terms of what's recognized as as important and valuable. At the same time, that that whole edifice, that whole system of valuation never got you very far anyway. And what do you do then with that refusal? What do you do with the kinds of resourcefulness and imagination that you have historically developed in the absence of being granted that kind of recognition and granted the very fundamentals needed in order to make a viable life. You've done something with that, that history. You've done something with that kind of, that kind of space. And, and, what, and, what, and what is it? And, and implicitly, how has it been relied upon by those that don't recognize you? I mean, so it's not only the reduction of sort of black urban life to all of the sort of labor that no one else wants to do and or the kind of expendability of, of, of black life or black labor within an urban context, but a kind of also distorted valuation where your residency is dependent upon for all kinds of things that are seen as extraordinary in a way. So how do you how do you move two directions at the same time, wanting to sort of constitute a different way of being urban, which you're capable of because you've had to experiment with this. This has been the very thing that you needed to do, 
but also in some ways to politically mobilize to get the resources that you need. And so in, in some ways, this the, the, the space of experimentation, the space of culture, in some ways, has to somehow address that kind of moving in two different directions at, at, at the same time. And that in some ways is, is, is going to be in ways in which space is organized, the ways in which, you know, uh, you, 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 you see it sometimes in the, in, in the black suburban areas of, of Northern Paris, where what seems to be on the surface a very homogenous public housing project maintains its appearance as a kind of warehouse of black life. But from the inside, all different kinds of rearrangements have been made in some ways to do something different than... So in some ways, the, this, this, is, this is always in some ways the, the kind of dilemma or the problematic or the locus of, of, of a kind of gen, generalized black engagement with the urban that somehow has to always improvise in that in that space yeah i mean you know i think you know the, the the thing that i really want to do is to really rid the idea that you know media is is white right and that like you know um that black people don't have media right and i think that's a that's a pretty kind of common assumption um in my field Right. When we talk about media, um, we're talking about um, media that are disproportionately um, associated with the West. Right. Um, and what you really start to see is that um, actually, you know, the, the different forms of media that the West have are not really from the West. Right. The, you know, the phonetic literacy is from the Phoenicians. Right. Like, um, the printing press comes from China, right? Like, um, but what the West has done is is it it has a really good, you know, propaganda machine, right? It has a very good, you know, um, storytelling device that it is the place where all technological um, development occurs, right? And nobody else has that. Um, <clears throat> so I'm really interested in, you know, finding the the these alternative what i would call alternative forms of media um that black people have used from you know from the start right um so you know in my my book one of the things i talk about is the the usage of of media on the underground railroad things that are are not considered media but you know if we accept the idea that media are these um, different iterations of of what it means to be human, and these they have these connections to time and space. Um, then you see that you know the kind of Western idea of media, which would be maps um, and writing, were oftentimes completely like not even necessary to to escape um, enslavement. Right. So, what did the you know, enslaved people used? Well, they used the constellations. Um, they used, uh, you know, different, like, things that we probably today wouldn't consider media. But if we accept just the media philosophy definition, we have to understand them as media. 
Um, they use um, their own bodies, their own, they transform their own bodies. They use sticks in the wood. They use flagpoles, right? They use, um, so, so you can kind of start to transform what media mean. Um, I think you could, you know, maybe call some of that improv- improvisation. Um, but I, 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 that's, that's really what I, what I'm talking about when I say black media philosophy, right? Is, is these, um, these alternative usages of media, oftentimes by people who probably wouldn't call them media at all. Um, so yes, I, I think there is, there is definitely some connection to, um, questions of improvisation and, and what I'm calling black media philosophy. Um, is I think the notion of of extensionality. One time I was in, in, in Abidjan, the soldiers taking over all the military bases, the radio stations, the and everyone knew about it within minutes. It was sort of radio patoir, you know, the radio of, of, of the street, but but people knew about it almost instantaneously without any kind of social media, without any kind of announcement. So there's this sense if you take sort of if you if you try to take to adjust maybe Tina Camp's notion of adjacency, where adjacency isn't sort of the the consolidation of a locality, as Armand was saying, through property. It's not the consolidation of prop of property. The the notion of adjacency, closeness, intimacy was sort of upended by the plantation as Spillers has so so cogently documented. Adjacency is something that has to be constructed. It's something that's extended. It's an extensionality. And the bodies are conduits. They're part of this sort of extensionality. So I think Armin's point is really important. A kind of media that is through this notion of extension is something very different than the consolidation of the interpretive mediating self that is sort of fixed within the confines of a certain series of properties. So after all my apprehensions about Armand and Abdul Malik having technical difficulties, it was my computer that had Wi-Fi issues and meant that I dropped off the call towards the end. I'm sorry about that, Sally. What stood out to you in the conversation? I really enjoyed seeing the connections between their two fields unfold throughout their conversation. One part I particularly found interesting was how Armand spoke about Black media and how it can be used as a way for Black people to engage with physical space in radical and spontaneous ways. And how space, time, and human engagement can shift the context and analysis of media. And for me, the same goes for open space. As is evident in their conversation, space is also animated by the spontaneity of human life. So yeah, I thought those parallels were very interesting. We're also joined with our associate producer, Aldor Bergton. What did you think about the episode, Aldor? Thank you so much. You know, I really enjoyed listening to the conversation today. You know, this idea of like Black studies isn't about what you read, but it's more so about how you read it. I think that concept is so interesting and really speaks to a lot of the spaces that we occupy. You know, this idea that like five people can read the same thing and could have understood and retained one piece of text completely differently. And being aware of that is so incredibly important. So I think, you know, 
when hearing that and hearing um, the conversation today and hearing them talk about that, it's it's just it's really interesting how truth and what consists of truth has so many different dimensions and angles. And when we don't uh, necessarily consciously account for that at all times, that's when we begin to create a wall for like the potential and possibility within those conversations for the plethora of dimensions and perspectives that come about it. Um, that's when we create limitations and barriers to actually explore those possibilities. Thanks so much. I also wanted to add that Armand and Abdul Malik emailed us with some of the music they're listening to and some of the books that they're reading, such as William Parker's Migration of Silence into an Out of the Tone World and David Austin's Moving Against the System, the 1968 Congress of Black Writers and the Making of Global Consciousness. And we'll be sure to post those on our Instagram. This is the final episode of season one, but we'll be back with more episodes soon. We'll release a special two-part episode with David Austin and Brian McCandy later in the year, and we'll be talking with incredible scholars, activists, and artists in 2023 about the connections between the arts, social justice, and decolonial thought. Stay tuned to our Instagram, at Black Studies Podcast, for regular updates. Thanks again for listening and supporting the podcast. Until our paths cross again, take care.